Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Impact of Influence. The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here. We're both on the phone today as I am uh, driving from Colleton County Courthouse. And uh, Seton was there this morning and yesterday as well. Uh, John Snyder, who has been on both sides of a murder trial, both as a prosecutor and a defense attorney, joins us as well. And we will begin with uh, Monday's testimony from the defense experts. And Seton, discuss that. Yeah, so first we heard from a pathologist who... Basically, my take was he came on to say that Paul's gunshot wound came from the top of his head, disputed kind of this through the shoulder or neck up to the head. So first this pathologist came on and then we heard from a crime scene reenactment person who kind of tried to put it all together for us. And I think he did not put it together super well. I mean, we did get the idea that he was saying he believes that it was a contact contact shot to the head to Paul, which if indeed it was, he says would have made this massive blowback where skull and brain and debris and blood would have covered the shooter so much so, and maybe even injured him so much so that the shooter would have been dazed and would have been not able to pull himself together or herself together to get over quickly and shoot Maggie as many times as he did. And so therefore the two gunmen theory reared its head again. And of course, one of the big things was they didn't shave Paul's head to see if indeed there was the contact there because it would have left a mark. And uh, that was, that is how they got back to the two shooter theory again uh, John Snyder, do you have any thoughts on that? So I, I think the pathologist is raising a valid issue because based on the injury that uh, under their theory, if somebody was shooting a shotgun at that close of a range, the, the shooter themselves would have been injured. And so you would have had some evidence on the shooter uh, through injury that, that proved that they were the trigger man. And so the pathologist for the defense is pointing that out to say, Alex didn't have any of this. Uh, it, you know, he, he wasn't, his eyes weren't injured. He didn't have any scar tissue on his face from, you know, bone fragments. There was no, there's nothing on Alec that would be consistent with a close range shotgun blast to Paul. And they couldn't, and it wasn't just something he could simply just rinse off because it would have really messed him up. 
And they brought up his thick hair. He had this thick hair. And would it be possible for him to get all this stuff out of his thick hair? Another thing that they brought up was kind of this absence of some of the blood matter where the person who was standing in the in the area of the shooting. So, like, obviously, if someone's shot and you get all this blood spatter back at you, there would be, if you're standing in the way, you would not have spatter around where the person was standing in the way on the walls and that sort of thing. I think they called it a, a void that uh, yes. there, there wasn't anything there because it would be somebody there. But this, this question I have for you, John, and I may be going a little crazy on this. Um, I talked to other people who are confused as to where he would be standing, the shooter, etc. And this comes into play later in, in testimony from the other side, but I thought it would have behooved them to have some sort of reenactment, maybe a, a door jam, maybe uh, even standing up and saying specifically, this is where, here and how it goes. He shoots them here, he walks over here, but they never did that. It was just all talking, kind of pointing at things. Thoughts on that? I, I, one, they may have been limited by budget since the guy's broke and and that kind of stuff is expensive to produce. Two, what the defense is trying to do is to show, look, we've got a very clear and fair explanation that it was two shooters. And so if we have a very clear and reasonable explanation and they have a reasonable expect, explanation, that's what reasonable doubt is, folks. And so the danger in going all in on a forensic uh, approach is, you know, what, what we see uh, today with, you know, how, how good is the science? And, um, you know, I, <laughs> if, if somebody committed this murder, I think the way they did it was they probably shot the wife first, then the son is surprised, comes out, and then he gets shot. And so, you know, nobody's wait. proven what what my you know what my armchair theory is of, of how the murder. Yeah, no one likes your theory. Wait, that's what neither side is saying. Neither side is saying that, and I actually can disagree a bit with Matt because I actually thought the bringing up with the two shooters was successful. It it made me personally question. Okay, was there someone else there? Yes. Well, I mean, the two shoot that part. I mean, but I didn't get how the guy got behind, the shooter would have gotten behind Paul and got the gun above him. That well, was if you was confusing. Oh, he's just leaning forward. He was leaning forward. But they didn't. Oh. They didn't. They didn't clearly say that because they also said the shooter stepped into the bedroom. So it got confusing to me and uh, a couple other folks. It's like, okay, well. Exactly. Where it was. Or, or they Don't moved the body. Or, or they moved the body in post mortem. They did the second shot close range. Mm. I don't know. That's fishy. Um, but the the uh, other thing uh, from that day. Oh, so what? Where do you want to go next? Your, your call. Where do we want to go well, next? I mean, we we covered both of the experts. You know, we had the pathologist. We had the crime scene reenactment person who I thought were successful, you didn't necessarily agree with me. And then we have John Marvin, Ellick's brother, take the stand. And oh, I will tell yeah. you, being in the courtroom, he resonated with the jurors, in my opinion, 
he oh absolutely he he spoke for his brother and he I kind of at, at the end when they said well they talked about this family legacy and one of the things they said well was your family's legacy important to you and Alec and all these things? And he said, "We, of course, but I think everyone's family legacy is important. And I saw some jurors nodding their heads. Well, in fact, he said, just as yours is, as he said to uh, the prosecution, uh, prosecution, and then he looked over at the jury and said, just as y'all's is. So he gave him one of those kind of things. Exactly. Also, one of the beautiful things he did right out of the gate is he distanced himself from attorneys. I am not a lawyer, made a little joke about it, and I think it was important that he wasn't seen as uh, one of the smooth-talking, not that he isn't smooth-talking, but the smooth-talking attorney types, and uh, you know what it's like to distance yourself from an attorney, John. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right? I mean, he was more of a manly, you know, more of like, you know, I do these heavy equipment and rentals and, you know, that kind of thing. I thought he was emotional in the right places, too. No, he seemed obviously very close to Paul and was obviously torn up when talking about Paul and his injuries and his closeness to Paul. And that it it came across as genuine. Now, the uh, that wrapped that up. And so uh, it would be Tuesday. The defense gets to uh, bring up the rebuttal witnesses. And Seton, let's uh, hit it. What do we got in the first two? Well, I think the judge seems slightly annoyed that the defense or the prosecution was bringing up so many rebuttal witnesses. And the first witness they brought up was Ronnie Crosby, who was a former law partner of Alec Murdoch. He had already testified. Um, And the big takeaway from him was he was a, Alec was a theatrical lawyer and basically, he was a big actor, and maybe you can't believe anything he says. That's what I took from it. Well, plus, it got really, it got really fiery. Let's play a little clip of Dick Carputlian trying to get under his skin and say, "Hey, you hated Alex, didn't you?" Let's hear it. Withdraw the question. Let me ask you this question. Maybe this gets to the to the meat of matter here. Have you had to come out of pocket to pay back the money he stole? Yes, and if uh, you, how much? I, I, don't tell me you don't know. Well, we're still counting, Mr. Hartbootley. Well, how much have you paid so far? We have had to uh, borrow millions to pay back. No, how much have you had to come out of pocket? Well, when you borrow it, you got to pay it back, and I couldn't tell you how much has exactly been paid back uh, as of we sit here today. But Ten yes, and, and if you're implying that I would come in here and somehow shade truth. In any way, because of that, that's I would take high offense with that, Mr. Hart Putin. Well, concerned about your high offense? Are you angry at him for stealing your money? I have no feeling one way or the you other. Don't have any feeling about Alec Murdoch betraying you and stealing your money? You're, I, I admire you. I don't know that I can look beyond that. Sustained. There's not a question. The jury is to disregard the argument. You are not angry with Alec Murdoch. I have had anger with him, extreme anger, Mr. Hart Putlin, because of what he did to my law firm, my partners, my client, his, his clients, our clients, what he did to his family. 
what he's did to so many people, yes, I experienced a lot of anger. And but you can't walk around with anger. You have to find a way to deal with it and move forward. And I have done that. And if you suggest you are dead wrong, if you think I've come in here and told this jury something because of money, when we, we're talking about two people who were brutally murdered, then you're, you're, you're headed in the wrong direction. Do you think he did it? Do I, don't have, I don't have an opinion. I don't have the benefit of the materials you have. Well, let me ask you this. You're angry with him, stole millions of dollars from your firm. You admit your firm's not even called the Murdoch firm anymore, right? It is not. I don't admit that I'm angry right now. I told you I've gotten away from that. I don't have any feelings because you can't walk around with anger. I have been very, very angry about it because of what he's done. And he did it in a very callous way, a very deceitful way. And you carry no... I'm sorry, I, maybe I just saw some anger there. Were you angry just a moment ago? No, you keep trying to push a question and don't want to accept my answer, which is what it is. That you've just given your, your, your zen, your nirvana, your whatever the... Your Honor, objection. Are you, Mr. Harpootlin, I came to the scene of these murders to support my partner. I was there. I saw things that hadn't even been talked about in this courtroom. I was there. I, I, I love Paul very much. I thought I knew who Alec was. I did not. And it's hard to, 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 to you might not understand, but it's just, it's hard to, to, to walk around with, with anger and hard to even walk around with it when it's with somebody who you didn't know and didn't understand. So you, you, you might have, have been that way, but you know, I've got a function. I've got a family. I've got to move on with life. Okay, this was everyone, I think, it's mouths were dropping open at this point. Harpootlian was very fired up, and Crosby kind of gave it back to him, but he didn't go as far as saying he thought he was guilty, but obviously he's mad. John. Yeah, rate that, Mr. Attorney. Yeah, so a couple things I noticed, you know, he <laughs> he never stopped being a lawyer. In that when he starts going through, I was, you know, I was mad that he did this and this. And then he said, you know, my clients. And then he stopped because I, I guarantee you what flashed through his brain was if I, if they were my clients and I wasn't managing their case file properly, mm. I'm going to get in trouble with the bar. And so he immediately <laughs> revises his statement to make sure that's, you know, the, the jury and everybody there knows that they weren't his clients personally. <laughs> they were the law firm's clients. And so, I mean, that interchange was was a good interchange. And I think w when Harputlian asked him directly, do you think he did it? He didn't have an answer. And so yeah. while he was keying him up on, on bias or keying him up on, you know, why, you know, you're just here because you're mad that you lost all this money. The guy, the guy answers truthfully. And then, and then when he's asked, you know, in his moments of candor, you think he committed the murder? He didn't have an answer, and it was it wasn't like he was he he ain't trying to be friends with Alec Murdoch anymore. He he's had a lot of money, so I thought that. Who, who was, do you think wins that? Who do you think in a juror's mind? Who do you think wins it when he says, "I don't know"? Do people take that as well? It's possible, or they say, "Huh, oh, he doubts it." Then why shouldn't I doubt it? Uh, I mean, it, number it, to know, it, right? It could be both. I mean, that's, you know, again, 
jury decisions are sometimes like elections where, you know, why do people ultimately vote for one candidate over the other? Or, you know, why does a juror make a decision one way or the other? It might be because they're cat people. And somewhere along the way, they find out that a candidate likes cats. (laughs) They might hear that one of the witnesses owned a cat. And therefore, they're like, well, if they owned a cat, they, they can't be guilty or what? Yeah. Who knows? Um, right now, the the fact that, that we all are still seeing, you know, different versions, different possibilities, you know, some of that's punditry, but some of that's like, hey, it, if the jury decides that any of the defense evidence is is plausible they're going to really hone in on the defense argument of reasonable doubt, which will then be rebutted with the closing of the state. This jury seems so done annoyed. They've listened to, we're now on what, almost week six. They're done. Does that bode well for either side? Uh, I think as a result of the length of trial, you're probably going to have longer deliberations then, then you, you know, th- this jury could be out a, a lot longer than will seem normal, primarily because they're not going to remember the testimony that they heard on day five of somebody. And so somebody's going to have a note or, or, you know, remember, remember when the guy on the, the, with the red tie testified, well, let's ask the judge for to, to send back his testimony. And uh, I disagree with you as far as what I saw the Saturday, Tuesday afternoon. I did not think the jury was over it or disengaged at all. We can get into that further when we get to the testimony that really I saw them leaning forward and seemed to be really into. But uh, who do you want to tackle next? Our Putlian's attack on the forensic pathologist. She was called back, Dr. Reimer. And actually, I. I mean, I, as your point taken, that maybe the jury is not disengaged. Maybe they might, after hearing some of the same testimony over and over again. Dr. Reimer, I kind of think a lot of the jurors were uncomfortable because Harputlian went pretty strong at her. I mean, he was he, he was fiery. I don't know if he was in a bad mood or what was happening today, but he was he was really going after her about her analysis especially about how paul was shot and i want to ask you about that uh, snyder as a tactical situation because the appearance is or could be and you know some people on social media said things about it that this old guy this old dude is beaten up on this female doctor and who is likable and my question is do you does the science get lost sometimes and you have to kind of pick and bob and weave when you go after, uh, I know you're defending your client and all that, but sometimes maybe it has to be measured. What do you think? Sometimes it's your own mood. Uh, some days you're a little grouchier sitting in the council chair than, than you would be on other days. But with this, this witness particularly, I think, he was incredulous of her science from the very beginning. And so the, the jury is going to track with him being incredulous. 
versus gender roles or you know beating up on this girl like she she's a doctor she's a professional uh you know professional she's a professional witness she can handle herself i wouldn't worry too much you know this isn't the first grumpy lawyer that she's ever run into yeah and so i think the jury is more likely to not react to that to not really even care because the points that he's driving home are valid, which is, hey, you testified under oath that you, you know, you're an expert. You are. Okay. And what, and, and in, within your expertise, what does that mean? D- does that mean that you didn't, you know, followed standard medical procedure for performing an autopsy? Did, did you, I mean, she, one of the major parts of her job, along with doing medical examinations, is testifying. So I think he's, it's probably not the first time he's ever cross-examined her. And I think they probably know each other outside of court. And so the points he's raising, I think are, are, are points that the jury's going to consider and they're not going to, they're not going to have age bias or gender bias of the witness. I, I think we're, I think we're past that point and, and, is not a should not be a focus well the two things that they kept hammering in and again i it's now becoming this battle of experts but the fact that she didn't uh shave paul's skull to see if it was in fact a contact wound and what was the other thing that oh uh she didn't x-ray the brain yes to see if it was uh, decimated more or there were pellets in it things like that and then we heard from T.C. Smalls, who is the Hampton County Sheriff, and he testified that Ellick never contacted him about installing a blue light in his car. And on cross, they said, well, maybe he contacted someone else in the department, but just another witness to kind of go against the credibility of Ellick and being a liar. Uh, yes, that it was just, it was a small, take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around. Right. So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to, you want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. It's quick. He was up and on and off a second, but you're right. Just a little dent into his... Look, he's lying about something he didn't have to lie about is what kind of the takeaway from that is because he never had to say that TC gave him the green light to get the blue lights. Um, but but 
he did, and maybe he was mistaken. You said it. Uh, next, uh, Seton. Paul Manigal, who was previously testified as a cell phone person, and they qualified him as an expert. And then he immediately went into this test that he'd done some testing on a cell phone, which was the same model as Maggie Murdoch's cell phone. And he did some self-testing where he threw it and both sides agreed that he was an expert. And then he went into this home testing. Matt, explain it. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. We, I, there was an, I was in the uh, wildlife center where uh, the people that are, are the overflow uh, watch it. And it was people laughed out loud because the guy basically like, uh, you know what I did? I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, of course. So I took, uh, I have a 14.5 operating system. She's a 14. And I went into my office and I closed the door. And I kept flipping the phone upside down. I threw it like a Frisbee. And, and eight out of 10 times, it, uh, the, the, the backlight didn't go on. So uh, it could have been thrown and it would never register. But Okay, I, I spoke, just, I myself conducted this test myself and I talked to several other people in the courtroom. When this all came out, we are like, let's see if our backlights turn on. I talked to multiple people who conducted these self-tests on their own at home. Yes, and they earlier had argued, though, that it was a, you had to be close to the same operating system. It wouldn't have been as sensitive. But regardless, I mean, they... On cross, they're like, so did you even record this? Did you write it down? The guy's basically, well, I just kind of flipped it around in there and in, in my office. And uh, I came, I came close to, you know, maybe 90% of the time. I'm like, please, this means nothing. This is ridiculous. Um, and there was the question of if he didn't record it, was the, the, the question of him not recording it? Because if he had recorded the results of his testing, he would have had to provide that to the, the defense. Yeah, I mean, it was just, I thought it was, I'm not even sure why they put him up there. Maybe just a little bit of, to show the possibility. But anybody's listening, that has got to be like, this is not science, brother. Well, I understand why they did it. Because I do feel like a lot of people, including myself, had questions about the disposal of Maggie's cell phone. Yeah, but will it hold up if you're thinking through it? I mean, yeah. Um, but maybe. Because uh, I've said before that they said it doesn't record any... Uh, uh, orientation sideways or something whatever as long as the backlight's not on you won't know if it's moved so they're going with this theory now i think it's a relatively new theory for their side that it was thrown and it did not record when it was being thrown this helps the prosecution because before they were said it was being thrown at 908 or something and uh alex wasn't right there at that time so they're kind of adjusting on the fly but hey, whatever um who next? Well, we heard from Mark Ball, who's another one of the former law partners of Alex Murdoch. And I really felt like it was a, a kind of repeat of Ronnie Crosby. I didn't yep. think it was added anything. I didn't either. So who what's uh, next you got? Yeah. And then we had the lunch break and we dug into a recall of Dr. Kinsey, who was the crime scene reenactor for the prosecution. And he was a great, great witness. He was charming. He was funny when he had to be. He uh, spoke in his Southern drawl. And I think that ingrained himself to the courtroom and to the jurors. Very likable, very affable. Uh, the jury was hanging on his, his words. They were laughing with him. And basically, he made the test. To te his testimony was that the defense experts that said 
that the shooter was between five two and five four, uh, and he proceeded to blow that apart by saying all the different ways that a gun could be held, or you'd be on your knees, or uh, you, you just don't know because the line the guy used was from a hole in like a cardboard type substance, yeah. so it wouldn't be accurate. Uh, he just kind of tore that apart as uh, not being probable that it was, or even if it was possible, it certainly wasn't definite that it was five to five four. It even went into describing how a six foot four guy could have done it, which is Alec Murdoch's height, incidentally. I think he said seven. He said a seven foot tall yeah. person could have done it. Yeah, he just kept going. Yeah, if it could have been five foot four, it could have been six foot four, it could have been seven foot four for that matter. Um, so yeah, that that he just uh, d- you know disputed that. But I think where he really got some points was on the major re- this 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 whole thing about the two shooters is now they're basing it on he would get hit in the face with all this bone and mass etc. Well, he really kind of crushed that a little bit or a lot of it. I think he said that for him to get in a position, the shooter where he'd be above Paul and shoot from that distance, and it was just. He, he did it in the door frame. He used the door frame as uh, the the entrance to the feed room, and showed how awkward it would have been for the shooter to get in the position to shoot ball in the head. And then he went through other scientific reasons why it probably wasn't a contact shot. And if it was a contact shot, one of the big things he explained was he'd seen three dozen or so in his life uh, investigated or seen. In fact, someone uh, committed suicide in front of him. He says when someone does that, puts a gun to their head or someone puts a gun to the back of their head, it blows apart their face. And Paul's face was intact. The orbital bone is kind of like paper and it just crumbles. And so his uh, argument was that I've never seen a face survive a, a shot to the head. And if it did indeed happen, the guy would have been in a really awkward position. Well, that's what Dr. Reimer said earlier too. She felt like if in these types of injuries, the, the way Paul's face was intact would not have been plausible. But when I was, I was listening because I was writing back and you were in the courtroom, it sounded like they opened a door to, to, to make this a visual for the, the jury. Did that happen? Oh, it was a great visual for the jury. It was an amazing visual because they, the, and, 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 and like I said, it could be completely different than what the defense experts said, but the visual of uh, the attorney trying to squeeze behind the, the person who was playing the role of Paul to get behind him in this little tiny doorway, get above him with a gun and shoot him. It was just ridiculous. Now, they, I, and I don't think he succeeded on redirect, or I guess it would have been cross, of proving that it wasn't, or, or you know, they didn't, he didn't demonstrate another way it could have been using the visual of, of the doorway. He tried. He had Dick Harpootlian go up there. He did the bend-over thing. Maybe if Paul was bent over. But I, I just don't think it played as well visually. But I don't, you know, let me, John, John Snyder, I'll bring you back in on this one because I have a question. If you think the science, let's say all the experts wash, right? You just got to have a push. Uh, does anybody have a particular edge in that if it's a push. Well, I mean, I think bringing in the 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 dummy door to illustrate his testimony 
is compelling. I mean, that's that you know, why why do we why are we always trying to use the latest technology in broadcasting? The same reason in a courtroom, you always want to look like you walked off the CSI set. So the the state did a very good job with this to be like, hey, we've called our witness. You called your witness, and and we and we get to rebut what your witness just what your witness just testified to. Here's this little doorway we've got. So so uh, Doc, watch you stand over here. So so based on what the what you heard defense's experts say, show me the angle I'd need to be at this door frame right. to be able to make that shot. Okay, well, that seems improbable. Now, uh, that that may ultimately be the key sequential evidence that renders a conviction because the jur- it, it isn't it isn't science nerds talking. It's them seeing the very thing. Now, I think, you know, when y'all you know, kind of pause here to you guys, I want to talk about the field trip tomorrow. Yeah. When I so, think that's going to come into play, like they're going to actually see yeah, the so, literal doorway. They'll get the size of it and all that. If you want me to, if you want me to go right into that, I can. Okay. Well, yeah, we, no. yeah, cause, yeah we're good because uh, that, that was about it for the, the day. Uh, then he announced it's field trip time. So yeah, when when that's one of the things I think one of the first things they'll look at is that doorway. So so I I personally think that tomorrow's field trip will probably be, and I and and I don't call it a field trip to be uh, flipping about it, but but I think jurors getting to see in real time in real space and like you're no longer in the courtroom you're going to get a full conceptual uh vision of you know the defense testified that the shooter was here and shooter two was here on the grassy knoll or whatever 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 their theory is or you're going to be like oh it is very easy for someone to have shot Maggie and then turned around and shot Paul or shot Paul and turned around and shot Maggie if they were carrying carrying weapons on them. So um, tomorrow will allow the jury in, in a more powerful way than any testimony, than any legal argument. That will be how they decide the case because the the context is it's it's the same reason we go to visit you know battlefields and 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 historical things because once you're once you're there uh once you see Pickett's ridge you understand like what the what the confederate army was going up against with the union army or you go to you go down to Fort Fisher in North Carolina and you see the 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 giant mounds that were blown away by can, you know cannon fire like that really puts battles crime scenes history anything into effect for for the jurors mind's eye to 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 kind of put a full picture and reach a decision let me ask you is 
are either the defense or prosecution allowed to comment, or is this just going to be a quiet tour? So, no, I can tell you that before, because Newman spoke to that today. No questions from any of the jurors to anybody but the judge. No comments from anybody except for the judge. And uh, the jurors can't even talk to each other. So that's that's the rules. And Newman, so Newman is attending this this field trip. Yes. Is that unusual, John? Do people, do they can't ask questions or they can ask the judge? No, stuff. I think that's, I mean, it's, it is. It, the, both the state and the defense have agreed that it's that that the viewing of the actual scene is in the jurors' best interest. So they both have rested, so the jury cannot consider any additional presentation from either side. And so the jurors may have questions for the judge and then he you know I, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there's not a court reporter also on the trip it just in the event that a juror does something or they need they need something recorded for the transcript and then they'll address those questions probably back in court so so counsel has an opportunity to you know give their opinion of the question or, you know, what, how they think the judge should answer it. But, uh, it is going to be basically they ride down, they walk around, they take whatever mental pictures they need to take. And then the judge will get, start giving instructions. And Seton, what do you think, uh, they would want to see most? What, what do you think they're going to be taking in? I, I would think, I mean, as, I don't know. I think to make sense of Paul's body in that feed room, I think to me, that would be what I was looking at as a juror. But again, it doesn't matter what I think. I also think it'll be when you hear people talk about 30 yards or 40 yards or 20 yards, first of all, people probably who knows if they're even accurate, but uh, distance and an overhead drone type shot or whatever doesn't tell you the distance. And if they can see how far, I mean, obviously the body, the places where the bodies were will not be marked, but they can remember. So how far apart were the bodies? How far away is the house? How long would it take from for Ella to go from body to body or to shoot Paul and then to walk and, and, and go over to shoot Maggie? Those kind of things are much more visual when you're there than in the overhead photos they've seen or individual photos that I, I you know, I know I can't, someone tells me 30 yards, I don't exactly know what that distance is, right? I mean, I think it's huge. Absolutely. Uh, You're completely right. I think people really need to have a visual. It, it just completely puts all the speculation, all the, because, you, you know, you take a picture of a crime scene, until you've actually been out there, you don't really understand it. And, I, and going to, to, to what both of you said, which is, scale how far you know was maggie running for her life okay you know you can then understand like the drama of the space because you see it versus a picture that has like a you know a red arrow on it mm -hmm. say body found here and little yellow uh you know markers for where casings were found and all that 
I mean, all that stuff's great and interesting, but I think going going to it and seeing it brings it to life and will allow the jury to have, you know, I, I, neither side is put at a disadvantage. Both both sides are convinced of the value of having the jurors going out to see this, and both sides are convinced for different reasons. Yeah, Prosecution put up a little bit of a fight, but not much. And I also want to point out that Judge Newman said, uh, reminded the jurors before the trip, he talked today, and he said, the vegetation is going to be different. The size of the trees is going to be different. The time of year is different. Just keep that in mind. And so he laid that uh, down. So they will do that. And then mid-morning on Wednesday, they'll start up again. And I, I guess the uh, closing arguments. And then he'll read uh, when jury instructions come after the arguments. I guess uh, there, there'll, right. be, there'll be some light. There'll be some probably a couple of instructions uh post so so he'll give a couple of instructions pre-argument about what how the you know what the arguments mean how a lawyer's arguments are evidence they are they they are allowed to give opinion but they're you know they're you know it's their opinion the all that matters is what you know you applying the facts to the law and and so then they'll argue and then and then he'll give the full instruction. And so tonight, tomorrow night, uh, both sides are, are pulling together their proposed jury instructions. Judge Newman will review those. There'll be a hearing on that. Uh, probably some fighting over what should or shouldn't be included, what special instructions should or shouldn't be included. And then uh, he'll make a ruling and then he'll, he'll give the charge and then they'll begin deliberations. So let's see, you got... Uh... Ooh, let's see. That's what that's Wednesday. Do you think everybody, you think jury will be ready to roll Thursday, everybody? Anybody want to take a guess or what they've heard? John? You, you know, four to five weeks of testimony plus your rebuttal. Uh, you know, you give, you give an hour for each week of testimony, maybe. Ooh. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying... That's possible there could be a five-hour closing argument by each side if there's five weeks. I'm saying that there's been nothing about the presentation of evidence that shows that they are in a hurry, that they are focused on making sure the jury considers all the things that they put out there. And so I expect a incredibly long closing by the state. That being said, these guys, this this is the shining moment of <laughs> the prosecutor's career. This is the biggest murder case they will ever handle, ever. And, and the same for the defense. The defense will be thorough in their tearing apart of what they believe to be the state's case. But they are certainly going to you know, be at least three hours. I look, I think all these guys have been proven. They like to talk. And so I wouldn't be surprised to hear some long arguments or, or because you, you, because of the stakes involved in the case. So I, but, but I think they'll still be compelling, but, but, you know, the old Toastmaster thing, the, 
mind can only endure what the seat can applies. And so you, you can just go too long, say too much and lose the jury. And man, that's a silly reason to lose your case, but it happened. That has happened. We have <laughs> feel like we've all, it's going on a little bit too long. I think editing is a good decision. <laughs> well, uh, hey everybody, uh, any last thoughts, uh, from Seton? No, good night. <laughs> uh, John Snyder, you got a podcast I hear. I do. We have a few episodes that will be launching next week called the Nerd Caucus. While I also enjoy talking about criminal trials, I love, love, love talking about politics. And this is not a political show. It is a show about kind of the backstory of, you know, just like I was saying about the crime scenes, you've got to go to the Capitol to really understand the history. So we're going to talk about all the things that go into the pageantry, the procedure, and kind of the nooks and crannies of uh, the federal uh, Congress and the executive branch. Awesome. And uh, I never mentioned, but I do a little show called The Matt Ramona Show on Mix 107.9. So check that out uh, in the mornings. All right, we're out. It's the uh, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook and MurdochPodcast.com and Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk soon, friend. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 